Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Heritage Foundation. I'm Andrew Parks, the Assistant Director of Lectures and Seminars. Thank you all for joining us today in the Lewis Lerman Auditorium. I just wanted to take the opportunity to remind everyone uh, attending in person to please silence your cell phones. For those watching today's program online, you're welcome to submit questions by emailing speaker at heritage.org. And uh, for future reference, this program is being broadcast and recorded and will be available on the heritage.org website within 24 hours for future reference. Now it is my pleasure to introduce the host of today's program, Robin Simcox. He is the Margaret Thatcher Fellow in the Margaret Thatcher Center for Freedom here at the Heritage Foundation. Robin. Thank you, Andrew, and uh, thank you all for being here. It's a great pleasure to be able to host this conversation today on the Trump administration's recent review into terrorism prevention programs and how the policy may look going forward. How best to execute terrorism prevention policy is a fiercely contested area, as it was with its predecessor policy as well, Countering Violent Extremism, or CVE. Yet as we see the variety of ideological threats imperiling the US today, there is increased consensus that the need for such a program exists. With that in mind, uh, we are delighted to be able to hear today about the administration's approach to terrorism prevention from Elizabeth Newman, uh, who serves as the Assistant Secretary for Threat Prevention and Security Policy at the Department of Homeland Security. The Office of Threat Prevention and Security Policy supports the department's mission to secure the homeland by countering terrorism, transnational criminal organizations, hostile nation states, human trafficking, and emerging threats. It also addresses global transportation security, screening and vetting, watch listing, information sharing, identity management and credentialing, and biometrics through the development and coordination of department-wide strategy, policy and plans, and the administration of programs such as Real ID, countering unmanned aerial systems, and visa waiver. Ms. Newman has a long background in the Homeland Security enterprise. She served on the Homeland Security Council at the White House during the stand-up of the department. As part of the White House's domestic counterterrorism directorate, she tracked terrorist threats and developed domestic prevention and mitigation strategies and programs. Ms. Newman also coordinated the development and implementation of the federal government's post-9-11 terrorism information sharing strategies and policies, including the architecture through which the federal government shares information with state and local government. Later, in support of the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, Ms. Newman worked with the Departments of Justice and Homeland Security to develop the protocols for reporting suspicious activity, and she developed one of the early community-based models for countering violent extremism. Also speaking today will be Seamus Hughes. Seamus is the Deputy Director of the Program on Extremism at George Washington University. He's an expert on terrorism, homegrown violent extremism, and CVE. Hughes regularly provides commentary to media outlets, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, CNN, Fox News, and PBS. He's testified before the U.S. Congress on multiple occasions. Hughes previously worked at the National Counterterrorism Center, serving as a lead staffer on U.S. government efforts to implement a national CVE strategy. He regularly led engagements with Muslim American communities across the country, provided counsel to civic leaders after high-profile terror-related incidents, and met with families of individuals who joined terrorist organizations. Prior to NCTC, Hughes served as the Senior Counterterrorism Advisor for the U.S. Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee. 
He organized over a dozen congressional hearings on the threat of homegrown violent extremism and led fact-finding delegations to various European and Middle East countries. So Ms. Newman will speak for about 15 minutes. Uh, we're then going to have a broader conversation between the three of us, and there'll hopefully be some time for questions afterwards. So Ms. Newman, I leave it to you. Thank you, Robin. And I just want to thank Heritage Foundation for um, having us at this uh, have this dialogue. It's a really important dialogue. It's one of what I hope will be many in the near future as we're working through our, our future plans. Um, also, thank you to Seamus. I'm, I'm pleased that you're here and, and joining the conversation and sharing your longstanding expertise with us. Um, before I get started, I, I wanted to take a moment uh, and acknowledge that today is the one-year anniversary of the, the shooting of, uh, at Marjorie Douglas or Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland. They claimed the lives of 17 people and wounded many others, and our hearts go out to the families and friends who lost loved ones that day and who struggled with the tragic aftermath. Uh, violence of any sort is abhorrent, and we are all here because we want to prevent that kind of tragedy from happening again. DHS is deeply engaged in enhancing our prevention capabilities against not just terrorist attacks, uh, but all ta targeted attacks motivated by violence. We were born out of the response to 9-11, so terrorism is always going to be a core part of our mission. But to truly fulfill our mission to secure the homeland, we have to be able to address all threats. So let's, let's go back a little bit, because I think taking a step back kind of helps us figure out where we are and, and, and where we need to go. I, I was beginning my federal career right around the time that 9-11 happened, and preventing another complex coordinate al-Qaeda-like attack was uh, the mission of the day. Uh, one critical issue that we faced uh, was to get intelligence from overseas into the hands of state and local law enforcement. We needed to train them on the nature of the threat so they would know what to report on uh, up to the federal authorities and plots that could take months or years to develop. In that time, we would be able to possibly piece together individual clues across multiple jurisdictions, money changing hands in one place, sites getting cased, um, uh, explosives getting purchased. So individually, those signs might not mean much in, in one particular place, but you pull them together, and our theory was we'd be able to hopefully see signs of an attack being planned um, and then we could prevent it. So that was the thinking behind a lot of our information sharing architecture. We stood up fusion centers. We stood up the Nationwide Suspicious Activity Reporting Initiative. We trained uh, state and local law enforcement and analysts on, on indicators uh, that, uh, that they should be reporting on. We, uh, we brought state and local law enforcement into the intelligence community. We still have that today. We have um, first responders and law enforcement at the National Counterterrorism Center providing advice to uh, analysts on what kind of products are useful for them. So those initiatives have gone a very long way, and I would say that was kind of the heart of what prevention was in the early stages uh, post 9-11. But around 2008, we started to see that the threat was changing. We started to see a surge of people leaving the United States to fight with terrorist groups abroad. We had young men from Minneapolis who were traveling to Africa to join al-Shabaab, leaving friends and families mystified and devastated, and we started to realize that there was another gap that needed to be filled. So that was the gap between law enforcement and communities. DHS's Office of Civil Rights and Civil Liberties, whose original purpose was to address concerns about civil rights, found themselves answering questions from distraught parents about what was happening to their boys. And that was the beginning of what has now become about a decade of community awareness briefings and public education programs. But the threat continued to evolve. And then in 2014, we saw the rise of ISIS and their prolific use of online propaganda and recruiting. And no one could predict where ISIS would find its next recruit. The demographics changed. They recruited women as well as men, children as young as 14, converts, recent immigrants to the U.S., as well as those who had come to the U.S. as children and those who were born here. ISIS can now inspire or direct plots almost undetected on the internet or in secure chat rooms, which meant we had to rely on earlier detection mechanisms, family, friends, teachers, coworkers, to speak up when they saw concerning behavior. The threat has evolved, and so I would propose that our approach to prevention needs to evolve and mature. After 9-11, when DHS was created, pre prevention meant stopping imminent attacks. 
But today with social media, which is a ubiquitous part of our lives, and the use of social media by terrorist groups to recruit, radicalize, and mobilize to violence, prevention has come to mean something different. Today, prevention requires a broader range of tools than we had before. Maybe arrest remains the only option in many cases, but what about the 15 or 16-year-old boy that's just become enamored with ISIS propaganda? Might the community intervene to stop that trajectory before it leads to arrest, or worse still, to an attack? We should be able to push back on ISIS's propaganda of murder and lies, but is the government the right credible voice? And if it's not, then who is? What about domestic terrorism? Domestic terrorist movements have been adept at using the internet to grow their base and inspire attacks, but how do we prevent that from happening without comp compromising protected speech? These are some of the questions and issues we've been wrestling with, and when the new administration came in in January, we wanted to take a hard look at the experiences of the past decades so that we could build on the, those successes and learn from the missteps. And we've been conducting our own internal review, uh, but we figured we, we wanted to have some additional outside perspectives. So that's where RAND came in. We asked them to do an unbiased biased external perspective. And today I'm pleased to announce the publication of that study and to share with you some of the highlights. But first I want to clarify some terms and, from, uh, and for understanding of where we need to go a little, little step back again. Um, if you might, might be familiar with something called the National Preparedness Goal, uh, it laid out five mission areas prevention, protection, mitigation, response, and recovery. As recently as 2016, when the National Prevention Framework was issued, prevention was scoped as what the prevention community should do upon the discovery of an imminent threat to the homeland, meaning a bomb has been placed. What are the mechanisms that go and defuse that bomb? Or we have intelligence that an individual has entered into the United States with intentions to attack. What are we going to do to stop that individual? So one of my core premises when I came back to government was that as a department and as a federal government, we have spent tremendous time and energy and money on the other four of those mission areas, protection, mitigation, <laughs> response, and recovery, uh, but not as much on the prevention mission. The protection mission is now uh, is, is led by CISA, which used to be called MPPD. CISA is the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, and the mitigation, response, and recovery missions are managed by FEMA. Now, they don't do all of that work, but that, they're the center, central hub within the federal government that coordinates with the partners. And any time uh, we talk about Homeland Security, it truly is an enterprise. It's state, local, tribal, territorial <coughs> governments, non-governmental organizations, the community down to the individual. So their, their role in that space is to be the convener and the coordinator. There are certain missions that they conduct themselves, but a lot of what they do is training and equipping and building the doctrine and the approach behind how we carry out those missions. Notably, we don't have a central operational component or headquarters office that addresses prevention in the same way that MPPD or FEMA do for their respective missions. So we have what I would like, I tend to call pockets of excellence. We have a lot of really interesting and good work occurring in the prevention space, but there's no, there's no central belly button at DHS today. Um, and there's really not in the rest of the federal government. This is largely due to post 9-11, everybody seeing prevention as inherently a law enforcement mission. Uh, when it was a law enforcement mission, FBI said, we're in charge of terrorism. And everybody said, okay, great, you got it. Uh, but what the community is starting to realize is that that very small, narrow, but very critical uh, role of law enforcement and prevention is not enough to prevent, because we still have attacks. Um, so what I'd like to suggest is that based on the evolution of the threat, that terrorism prevention needs to become much broader. It needs to encompass all of the left of boom space. Prevention should be how we prevent individuals from carrying out attacks or acts of violence. Now, that's a distinction from protection, which is focusing on the potential victims or the those that would be attacked, so either the individuals or the entity, the asset that could be attacked. People, transportation systems, critical infrastructure, houses of worship. But prevention and protection are very complementary missions, and they both are critical to the overall counterterrorism space. So when we asked RAND to conduct the study, we asked them to focus on that far left of boom space because it's the least studied and the least mature of the overall functions in the prevention spectrum, if you will. 
Um, so you'll see in the report that terrorism prevention is defined as the policies and programs that aim to reduce the risk of terrorism through tools other than traditional law enforcement and criminal justice tools like arrests, prosecution, and incarceration. But this in no way means that law enforcement is excluded from the prevention framework. One of the issues we wanted to correct from years past, in fact, is the sense that law enforcement was kept too much at arm's length from these terrorism prevention efforts. Law enforcement is an indispensable partner in the combating terrorism effort all throughout the levels of government. And the National Strategy for Counterterrorism is clear on this as well. It was released in October uh, of last fall. Terrorism prevention, it says this, terrorism prevention efforts require effective partnerships between law enforcement, civil society, social services, and community members. And I would add that given the role of social media, tech sector companies have become a really vital partner as well. So in conducting their assessment, RAND spoke with stakeholders across the country and even in a number of foreign countries that have active terrorism prevention programs. And I tip my hat to them for the extensive legwork that they did in compiling this report, much of which what they found will not come as a surprise. Um, so here are some highlights. Some of the biggest successes they found were in the community education efforts, which DHS has been engaged for more than a decade through our Office of Civil Rights and Civil Liberties Roundtables and the Community Awareness Briefings, or CABs. Um, the CREX, or the Community Resilience Exercise, was also found to be a successful example of, federal programming, of a federal programming effort. And in my mind, it's, one of a, it's a great model for the role of the federal government, where we served as a convener, we brought together community members with law enforcement, and we asked them to reverse roles in order to better understand the challenges each side faced. And by doing that, we helped them break down some barriers so they were then able to design their own long-lasting solutions on how to partner together on this problem. Rand also found that challenging terrorist narratives is one of the most difficult tasks for the federal government, uh, but one that can't be ignored. Um, given the prevalence of online propaganda from both international and domestic terrorists, more than any other area, this is an area where public-private partnerships are critical. So Rand noted one successful example in the success of the peer-to-peer -peer program developed by Adventure Partners, in which students and young people developed campaigns to counter extremist messages. DHS helped launch this program, and it continues today as a private initiative with support from Facebook. Rand also noted the success of the Digital Forum on Terrorism Prevention. And again, this is where DHS doesn't come in and fix everything, uh, but rather serves as a convener and brings together the different players, tech companies, NGOs, individuals, and others who are trying to fight extremist narratives. On the issue of notifications, Rand found that while there are robust systems inside government for suspicious activity reporting, there are no uniform mechanisms for making intervention referrals by the public. Though they did note the development of some local capacity to intervene with individuals at risk of radicalizing to violence, such as the disruption and early engagement program, but those efforts are few and far between, and the lessons gleaned from those efforts need to be widely shared. Overall, Rand found that the successes that had been achieved in terrorism prevention programs were fragile because of shortfalls in resources as well as efforts by critics to constrain such efforts. And they found that the best path forward is for the federal government not to take a lead role, but rather to support the role of state, local, non-governmental, and private organizations' prevention efforts. Personally, one of the aspects of the report I found most compelling was a chapter on the financial aspects of terrorism prevention, particularly comparing our spending with other Western democracies. Not surprisingly, ours is significantly lower. Although we do have a lower threat from, than some of our partners, um, and Rand proposes that some interesting yardsticks for appro approximating spending le levels, they argue that given the high cost of traditional counterterrorism approaches of arrest, prosecution, and incarceration, even if terrorism prevention reduces activity only by a modest percentage, the benefits will quickly justify the programming costs. We have not done a good job until now of making the financial case for prevention, and rectifying that must be part of our effort going forward. Lastly, I will mention that the RAND report found that most interviewees believe that terrorism prevention must address the threat of violence from all ideological sources. In other words, programs should address international or Islamist terrorism as well as domestic terrorism. 
So that was a bit of a whirlwind, uh, but it's impossible to do justice to a 335-page report in about 15 minutes. But I hope the few points that I have made will uh, prompt you to go look up the report and read it. Um, but let me conclude with you just a few words on our way forward. Um, first, we're very grateful to RAND for the outstanding work that they did. Its findings have been helping shape our own uh, approaches or conversations uh, to terrorism prevention in the future. Um, Secretary Nielsen tasked my office with developing a DHS counterterrorism strategy. It's going to complement the national counterterrorism strategy. And terrorism prevention is one of our pillars. Um, I won't go into details here, but I just wanted to mention some of the core principles that are guiding our thinking. You'll start to see some parallels from what we've found out of, uh, in the RAND report. Uh, threat prevention is best addressed at the community, local, and state levels. The federal government is not designed to address the health and welfare of the individual. That was authority that was given to the states to manage. But we can work with states to ensure we identify best practices through research and provide grants for supporting new programs and training and equipping those on the front lines with the latest knowledge of the threat and associated tactics of the enemy. The prevention archite architecture needs to leverage all of the Homeland Security enterprise, and we probably need to expand what we mean by that. We need to work with not only our state and local partners and NGOs, but community leaders. Uh, traditionally, DHS views uh, Homeland Security advisors and uh, law enforcement first responders as our primary partners. Uh, we need to do a better job of starting to work with uh, social services and civil society uh, as we address this problem. As noted earlier, we are focusing more on that far left of boom space because it's less mature. Asking questions, how do you help a vulnerable individual before they're radicalized or as someone is radicalizing but before they've crossed the line to criminal behavior? What kind of support or intervention could be deployed to prevent further radicalization or to off-ramp them? And then fourth, the prevention architecture should address more than terrorism. And this is really important because if you remember the first principle is that we need uh, to be supporting our state and local partners. Our state and local partners can't, they don't have the resources to be doing terrorism only things. And if you talk to them, the, uh, I think it was last year, one of their uh, top 10 or top 20 lists of threats that they're facing, terrorism fell down to like number 17, which makes sense. They don't see it every day. You know, and, and when we look at what they're facing, especially some of the major cities, it's violence that they're more concerned about, or they're more concerned about a potential school sh safety issue. What we're finding now is you look across what's being built out for school safety, what's being built out for, for uh, trying to uh, convince uh, certain populations not to uh, commit acts of violence against law enforcement, um, or any other type of threat out there, there are common behaviors, and typically speaking, there's moments that happen in the individual's life that lead them uh, to that moment where they want to become violent. So what we're looking at is how do we, how do we design our program so that it, it is a comprehensive threat prevention effort that meets the needs of our state, local, tribal, territorial governments in the community. So those are some very broad strokes on our thinking about terrorism prevention, and, and we look forward to sharing with you our more detailed approach in coming weeks and months. Um, I would say this is a, a mighty task. It's probably uh, the number one thing that I'd like to see done during my, my tenure. Um, domestic extremist activity is increasing. <coughs> They're learning from ISIS's success with technology. The, ter the territorial defeat of ISIS does not mean that they've gone away. The second stage of the fight against ISIS requires that we're bolstering aviation security, border security, and then terrorism prevention at home. And increasingly, we are seeing anecdotal evidence of individuals in search of an ideology that justifies their violent desires, meaning violence has become the ideology for some people. Ironically, uh, you heard from Robin, I, I cover a, a variety of threats, and when I talk to our Border Patrol agents, they're seeing the same thing in the uh, transnational criminal organizations. The cartels, the younger generation, has become increasingly more violent than the older generation. So we, ha we have a generational problem with violence. It's been talked about ad nauseum because of our school, school shooting challenges. But increasingly, we're seeing in the counterterrorism space a similar uh, hopping from one group to the other to find a group that justifies the individual's desire for violence. So these are complex tasks. We have some 
10 years of lessons learned behind us, and much of that is captured in the RAND report. We have a robust community of those who share in our commitment to threat prevention, many of whom are here today. And the RAND report is now available on the DHS website and the RAND website. I encourage you to read it in full, and I look forward to discussing it with Robin and Seamus. Thank you very much for your attention, and I look forward to the dialogue. Thank you. Um, there's, a, there's obviously a, a lot of, of different ways you, you could take this conversation and a very exhaustive presentation uh, you delivered. The, the first one, if, if I could kick us off on this, is that one of the things you mentioned was that the U.S.'s prevention efforts were perhaps um, less mature, they'd had less financing than some of, mm-hmm. uh, some of the, the governments you work with and some, some of the U.S.'s counterparts which in one ways I suppose you could view as a, as a negative, but then in another way is also a positive. I mean, it's an opportunity for the U.S. to avoid perhaps some of the mistakes that some of uh, your other allies have made in their prevention work over the past decade or so. So I was wondering if you could um, explain a little bit more about the level of, of interaction DHS has with similar prevention efforts in, for example, with your European partners, um, comparable democracies, and how those two to the extent that's useful in kind of helping guide your policies? Um, Certainly our European partners are facing uh, quite the challenge. Um, Most of the foreign terrorist fighters, when they have gone back home, um, uh, there were strong flows into Europe a couple of years ago, and so they they are facing this in real time. Um, And there is a concerted effort to... um, uh, put research dollars at this. I, I think everybody wants to use evidence to determine what's the best way that you identify a radicalized individual or somebody that is on that trajectory. And then there's just a whole lot of questions out there about can you off-ramp, right? Like that um, there, there's mixed results on that. Um, there's a lot of work that our European partners are, are um, very focused on terrorist use of the Internet. And there's some robust debate over what's the best way to uh, counter that ideology, um, uh, I think uh, uh, the European Commission's in the process of possibly exploring some regulatory approaches to that um, that we are, um, uh, generally speaking, believe that a, a more voluntary conversational work with the tech sector has been more effective. Um, I don't have the stats uh, off the top of my head, but, but where we were two years ago versus where we are now in terms of how quick content can be taken down, um, uh, the, the, the major uh, social media companies will tell you that they're at the place where they're interdicting it before it is posted, So that, that, which we find to be a, a wonderful thing. Um, the, uh, the, that definitely helps with the, the radicalization problem. Uh, the U.S. government has um, probably the strongest relationships with our Five Eye partners. Um, the secretary uh, participates in um, the ministries of interior and the Department of Homeland Security, uh, Five Eyes every year. And out of that group, there is a group that is dedicated just to the the terrorism prevention conversation. And they meet frequently throughout the year, and they're sharing uh, concepts. They're looking for pilot programs. Um, So it is a very robust dialogue. We're all uh, anxiously looking for what works and what doesn't. And and I think one of the the striking things – the most striking things to me was towards the end of your your uh, presentation where you talked about this idea that the the ideology is is violence itself yeah. and it's drawing people into it. do you think that's is that something that's unique um, to the last five years or so do you have any kind of sense of what the the cause behind that is and 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 I also wonder like the extent you think social media has played into that, or do you think there are there are a whole host of reasons outside the way information is passed around now that kind of helps explain that phenomenon? It's a great question, one in which I hope you study and give us some good answers. Um, it, it is it jumped out at me um, because I had a series of conversations over the last six months, very different audiences. Um, we were talking human trafficking, we were talking, uh, like I said, uh, on the border to our border patrol agents and and the evolution of some of the transnational criminal organizations that they see. And then, of course, in the terrorism space, we are 
looking at um, differences between, say, al-Qaeda versus ISIS versus, you know, um, pick your poison. Um, and then uh, was uh, had, had some interesting conversations with U.S. attorneys and what they were seeing. And, and everybody in their own way was, was kind of remarking at the, again, it's anecdotal. I asked, I asked, do we have stats on this? They were like, no, we have some intel reports, but we don't have hard stats yet. But there does seem to be this new phenomenon of um, individuals getting frustrated with the current group that they're in because they're not going to be violent enough. And then um, and one example was uh, somebody uh, uh, within the United States had joined a, a domestic extremist group. Um, got frustrated that they weren't going to do something bad enough and converted to Islam so that he could justify, under uh, ISIS ideology, uh, doing something worse. So um, I, I don't know the why, uh, but it does seem to be uh, multiple different communities discovering <coughs> the same problem, and I, I definitely think we need to understand more behind that root cause, which is why I think you, you'll see this in the RAND report and, and what I was trying to touch on in my remarks um, we have to get past just the radicalized individual, which is a hard enough problem on its own and does require a combination of law enforcement and uh, community because they may not have committed a, a radical uh, or, sorry, a, a violent act or a criminal act yet. We need to recognize that we have vulnerable populations in our country, and they are easy prey to be recruited. So what it, it's not inherently a... Um, a law enforcement problem. It's not really a federal government problem, but it certainly is all of our problem because they, this keeps happening. Um, and how do we help the vulnerable populations to become more resilient so that they can't be recruited? Um, Seamus, I'd be interested to know your your thoughts on, on any of the above. Um, but I also wondered if, if I could ask you to consider um, a slightly unhelpful, a slightly unhelpful political question, in that I was wondering if you had a sense of the extent of someone who's worked specifically on this issue in the U.S. inside of government and out for a long time now, whether there is an increased consensus on the need for these programs, whether you think there's momentum behind them, and uh, but also anything else that you may think uh, help aid the conversation today. Sure. Um, first of all, I just want to commend the Department of Homeland Security for taking a very deliberate approach uh, with the RAND study, you know, spending a few years to get this to the point where they, where it was very clear when you read the report, very detailed, a lot of interviews went behind it. Um, there was a few things that were struck in your, in your comments and I think are, are worth pulling out a little bit, and then I'll answer your question about whether we actually have an opportunity to do something. Um, the first point was this idea of minors um, and, and interventions, and I think We've had a recent Supreme Court ruling that basically um, doesn't allow Department of Justice to charge a minor with material support to terrorism. And as such, um, you have a window where you actually have to try non-law enforcement means mm -hmm. for minors or kick it to a state official to do state terrorism charges, which I think no one wants to do mm -hmm. to begin with. Uh, and I think that's a, a small window to that. You also said um, this idea of pockets of excellence within government, of which, of course, I was one of them. Um, <laughs> But there is something to be said about those pockets of excellence, and there's also something to be said about having a leader in, in government. And so I'd be interested in your thoughts on when the DHS-CT strategy comes out, whether you know, DHS, NCTC, DOJ, um, who's going to raise their hand and, and take what is admittedly a not a particularly um, fun topic and take the hit for it. Um, and then the last point on on I'd mentioned is I was really struck by the, the idea of essentially quality control. Um, so the federal government taking less of a role on on terrorism prevention in general in terms of running programs, but more being you know the backstop to say you shouldn't run that the cab or C Rex this way. Have you thought about that? Mm. Um, it was a very interesting kind of dynamic. It, it shrinks the footprint for the federal government, but I think it's probably the right balancing on it. Um, on your on your other question, uh, Robin's question about. Um, which I think what you're getting to is, has the ship sailed on countering violent extremism um, because the, the waters have been so muddied for the last five to ten years? Um, the short answer is no, uh, and, and there's a couple reasons for that. Um, one is I think any objective um, look at the Bush, Obama, and Trump administration CV strategy, I think would argue that um, the changes have been on the margins. Um, this idea of community engagement, this idea of community awareness, this idea of interventions, with some, obviously, um, terminology and, and, 
and particularly in the Trump administration, have focused more on, on the pointy end of, of violence um, than necessarily the larger issue. Um, but civil rights and civil liberties organizations, which are inherently against CVE, and um, my friends on the right and the left who either thought it was government overreach or too soft on terrorism, uh, I think they've largely focused elsewhere. And I think there's an opportunity right now um, to try to do some interesting programs in the local level um, without everyone kind of realizing what's going on, for lack of a better word. Um, <laughs> you know, there's, there's bigger fish to fry. Uh, you know, yesterday um, there was coalescing of getting uh, Portland police officers out of the NJTF, right, or the JTF. So they're focusing on more of the corner, pointy end of counterterrorism. And so you do have an opportunity to do this, particularly when it comes to minors and intervention programs. I think the last part, um, which, I, to be fair, I think you're going to struggle with the most, is just this idea of countering, countering the narrative. I just don't see government set up to do counter-propaganda domestically. Um, I don't see the tech companies having any incentive, um, barring some political pressure, which, to be fair, they're not getting anymore. Um, and so I don't – that hornet nest, I would probably – if I were racking and stacking, I'd put that in the last list because it's one of those things that's really nice to do but it would take 1,000 uh, percent of your energy, whereas I think the low-hanging fruit of interventions, of a center of gravity, of resources, is something that I think the administration could focus their resources on. Jonathan, you'd like to respond to that? Oh, it's just they're very, very helpful feedback. Um, we very much are in the uh, design phase of, of what, we're, what works um, – you know, recognizing the the current environment, uh, budgets are tight, um, but the uh, I, I think there's definitely a, a need for uh, the some sort of coordination function, uh, both within DHS as well as um, across the U.S. government. And uh, you asked about the the need to lead. I, I've been um, very grateful for General Nagata's leadership. He's the director of strategic operational planning at the National Counterterrorism Center, and it, it really has been. His um, uh, gospel for the last year of trying to educate people about the the counterterrorism fight, um, and I, I can't possibly uh, do him justice. But but things that he likes to explain to people is, um, you know, he's he's been in uh, the military all of his life, and, uh, and since nine uh, eleven started, we have more terrorists today than we. Did uh, just after 9/11, and uh, you know, I can we can send the military out. And um, uh, originally, the thought was let's take care of them over there, and then they won't come here. And ISIS changed that for us. Um, they they just keep uh, propagating. So there's something else at play here, and that doesn't mean that we don't need our kinetic capabilities and, and military and law enforcement and intelligence. That's extremely critical to our national security. But he's a huge proponent for needing to, you know, put put funds and put resources towards the prevention space, um, and uh, we we are having uh, some very uh, important conversations at uh, with DOJ, with FBI, uh, National Counterterrorism Center, and uh, the National Security Council about how we put that framework together. Um, I think some of the challenge, and you you said it just right, it's. There was a lot of good work on the margins, and everybody was trying to figure out how to tackle the problem, uh, but there was no there was no institutionalization. So when you tell somebody your mission is to do response uh, or do recovery or equip the homeland to be able to handle a hurricane like like FEMA, you know they, they go all after it, right? But but nobody was told <coughs> your mission is prevention, and this is how you define it. Um, so, so you have individuals who are identifying or organizations that identify things that they can do in their mission space, and they do it because it's important. And sometimes they do really amazing things, um, very innovative things. But it's uh, we, we need to be much more coordinated as a government, uh, much more um, uh, systematic in, in it, how we're using our dollars and our people um, to go after this problem. So I, I am hopeful that uh, this we're on the precipice of actually uh, institutionalizing a framework. Uh, I'm sure we will make mistakes. Um, I will use another General Nagata uh, phrase. He, he encourages us that um, we're, too, we're too risk averse, and which is another finding in the RAND study. Um, his encouragement is let's fail and let's fail fast because the faster we fail, the, more, the faster we're going to get to that solution. 
So some of this is about being transparent. We're going to try some things. We may fail. We may discover this is a bad idea. That's okay. You go on to the next thing, and uh, that does take leadership. Be be willing to to take that risk. I would also would mention too um, your comment that domestic extremism is is increasing. You know, if you look at the Obama administration's CV strategy. Um, it talked a lot about all threats, but in, in actuality, it focused um, primarily on jihadist or Islamist-inspired terrorism. Um, and I would say, I think you might have an opportunity to go to the Hill and say, we do want to plus up prevention efforts on domestic terrorism. And by the way, in exchange, we'd like to plus up um, jihadist-inspired um, prevention. I think you know Thompson and the rest of the staff like that, they would be interested in that having that conversation, particularly because they don't expect it. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think there's there's also a um, I think we as as those working outside government, those in think tanks, not only have a obligation to assist with some of the the intellectual heavy lifting in, in trying to make it, uh, trying to provide good policy ideas for DHS. Mm-hmm. We also have an obligation. I mean, when you mentioned the, the two risk averse, I think the think tank community here also has an obligation to not jump, I think, on DHS's back immediately the first time something does fail. I mean, the very nature of this CV work means that there are going to be things that are tried that aren't going to be a success first time because it's quite an innovative and new area still. Um, so I'm, it's encouraging to hear that there's a, a kind of idea of some of the problems that are being faced, an idea of how they might be improved, and, and I think um, you've both been uh, very... Uh, I think it's, it's, there's a lot of wisdom in what you say about the opportunities that are available mm-hmm. in the future, and that this isn't necessarily a. This is there is still a lot that can be done in this uh, on CV and terrorism prevention. So um, we've got 15 minutes. I think it'd be useful to have some questions from the audience. So if anybody has a hand up, I see a, a gentleman in the third, fourth row. Um, Um, school safety is such a um, – it's really loud. Um, school safety is such a big thing right now, especially for governors. I know after Parkland, there is a slew of pending legislation, executive orders, so on and so forth. And you mentioned that the behavioral risk indicators kind of cross-cut all kinds of forms of violence, whether it's someone's going to commit, commit an act of um, terrorist um, violence or school shooting or domestic violence, so on and so forth. And so – the message and what I've been doing with states is making sure that they include their health and human services agencies, their mental health providers, behavioral health providers. So I'm curious, um, with your peers, have you been interacting with folks who haven't been engaged at the federal level when it comes to working with CDC or HHS? I know you all have a great relationship with NCTC, DOJ, those folks, but um, kind of broadening the scope to those other agencies. So curious as to the reception of that, or if that's something that you all are looking at. Thank you. Um, National Governors Association was next on our list to go talk to in March, so we'll be calling. Um, and, no, in, in the uh, my past work, um, I found some of the some the ways in which we built the information sharing architecture um, was through the uh, Governors Association as well as some of the law enforcement associations. It, it really does have to be a dialogue in every state's Laws are different. Culture is different. Um, so the the architecture that you're going to have in one state is going to look different than the next state. But you can come up with basic uh, guideposts or guidelines, uh, standards, if you will, that uh, we can strive towards. The beautiful thing about doing it that way is then you have some standards, you have some guidance, and then the grant dollars are usually a little bit easier uh, to uh, to justify and to pass through. Um, and, and so that's that's another conversation where we've started with FEMA, and, and um, it's uh, it's like the third rail of Homeland Security to talk about touching the Homeland Security grant program. So, so one in which we have to tread carefully, but but it's an important conversation. Uh, we need more of of the uh, Homeland Security grant dollars that are are flowing to states and major urban areas to to be focused on the prevention space. Um, 
So thankful that you're here. Um, on, on the question of engaging with, with those other mission spaces like HHS and CDC, um, they participated in the development of the National Counterterrorism Strategy, um, and they are going to be a critical part of that uh, federal infrastructure. And some of the, the past CBE work um, that the federal government was was doing, there was a task force. They, they were a part of that effort. So so the, the concept has been there. It, it's been more about how do you institutionalize it, how do you make sure that it, it's uh, – uh, people are resourcing to it so that they um, the, you don't have a transition and people go away. You, some of this is just about putting basic uh, uh, structures in place so that we can all budget against it. Um, the other thing that I, I think it has helped the conversation has been the work that went under um, the School Safety uh, Commission. Uh, there was a a, a report that came out in November, and we're actually in, in the implementation planning phases. That was done in strong partnership with the Department of Education, Department of Justice, and HHS, as well as Department of Homeland Security and others. But those were kind of the um, the, the anchors, if you will. And um, what we're finding is a lot of the recommendations are very similar to what we're talking about here. Um, so we think that there's a, an opportunity to um, leverage some of the, the good work that occurred over the last year with those communities and bring it to bear against this problem space. Um, there's also in the third row there. I think the microphone's just... Hi there. I'm Kat Lachman from the Global Peace Foundation. Uh, speaking of grant programs, we were the uh, one of the 26 recipients oh, yes. of the CBE uh, program from DHS, so thank you very much. Uh, we are actually uh, about halfway through implementation on that community program in New Jersey where we've partnered with uh, the New Jersey Attorney General's Office, um, NCTC uh, on uh, a, a curriculum, also other law enforcement stakeholders like FBI, URASI, pro prosecutors, local police departments, first responders, frontline educators, and social service personnel. And so what we're training on are those mobilization indicators and also social media. Um, we're training law enforcement and community leaders. Um, you made mention in your comments about community programs that are showing promise in prevention. Um, I see this very similar to the gang prevention work that I was involved with in Detroit mm -hmm. uh, 15, 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, some of those similar elements and uh, uh, risk factors. Mm -hmm. And so my question for you is, uh, given the changing landscape and, and politics, funding, all these things, what, what words of advice or, or, or encouragement might you give NGOs such as ourselves who are uh, uh, wanting to continue working in this prevention space and seeing the value of it. Mm -hmm. Thank you. <coughs> thank you. Thank you for the work that you're doing because that, that's contributing to our security and, and obviously making it a, a, a stronger community. Um, the, I'm, and I'm glad you brought up the, the, the grant programs because that's um, one of the ways, uh, you know, we did ran the independent study, but one of the the things that is we're ho very hopeful the grant programs will show us are, is what works and what doesn't. Uh, $10 million over two years uh, went to um, community groups as well as uh, some law enforcement agencies, uh, some states, to be able to um, test different programs. And um, we actually have members of the, of the office that administers that grant program here, the Office of Te uh, Terrorism, sorry, Office of Terrorism Prevention Programs, OTPP, um, and uh, they they are in the process of sifting through some of those findings, and we're hoping that that will help us figure out both from a, a justification to Congress, you know, hey, this works. That's why we want you to give us more money for this, as well as um, you know, figuring out how the department should be organized and structured to support your efforts. Um, so, uh, my encouragement would be, I, I I think that there's momentum to. Um, institutionalize a lot of what has been happening uh, in either um, pockets, the pockets of excellence, or the uh, the isolated um, cases, you know, the, the money that, that Congress gave us for, for this particular grant program. Um, I think there's a lot more work to be done, and uh, it, it will um, 
it will be important to get stories out about the good work you were doing. I, I just would encourage the audience, if this, obviously you're here, so this topic interests you, when you read some of the work that the community organizations are doing um, to work with vulnerable populations or people that previously were radicalized or on the other side of it, um, it's really inspiring and um, a whole lot of, uh, you know, life, life's work and uh, blood, sweat, and tears that they've poured into it. Um, so it, it's very inspiring. So it, thank you for what you do. And uh, we're, we're working <coughs> on the other side to just make sure that we're uh, supportive partners and, and you, you have the resources that you need to be able to uh, expand the mission. Um, there's a gentleman there on the row. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for a uh, very nice presentation. Uh, my name is Peter Surin. I'm from the Russian Embassy. Um, as you know, uh, one of the as aspects of the terrorism prevention, it uh, deals with foreign terrorist fighters and their, their radicalization. As you know, Syrian Democratic Forces has captured reportedly thousands of uh, FTFs, and uh, uh, for sure they got no resources to prosecute them and sentence them. So the host countries should take them back. In this regard, I just wanted to ask uh, what are the U.S. actions in these directions, how many you have already taken, uh, how they were prosecuted, what leg legislation were used to prosecute them, uh, and if you allow the second question, Simu said that uh, there are problems with counter-propaganda in the United States. Uh, in this regard, I just wanted to, um, to ask how do you assess the work of the State Department Global Engagement Center? Thank you. Thank you for your question. Um, it, uh, the uh, detainees uh, the foreign, of the foreign terrorist fighters is a, a, a very important um, issue that the Department of State has the lead for, um, and so I will defer to them on the uh, current status of, of the, the ongoing uh, effort to uh, uh, make sure that we defeat ISIS and we identify um, uh, anybody that participated in that fight so that if they uh, ever attempt to travel, for example, that's a DHS equity. Um, we we want to make sure that uh, they can't get into the country. So um, we're supporting the Department of State uh, in, in their efforts to um, make sure that uh, justice is served appropriately. Um, and it is, but it's a very challenging problem, one in which I know the uh, international community has been struggling with, and uh, very uh, constantly talking about uh, possible solutions. Seamus, it would be remiss of me at this point not to mention your work on this, which is probably the most exhaustive out there. Yes, thank the you. The money's in the bag. Um, <laughs> no, we, at the programming extremism, we track all of the American travelers who travel to Syria and Iraq to join jihadist groups. Um, to answer your question, in the last year, we, the Department of Justice has brought back four individuals um, who have been picked up in the battlefield. Um, every one of them has been charged with material support to terrorism. Uh, only one individual was in a weird le legal limbo, and they ended up putting him in a third country. Um, so for the most part, um, the Counterterrorism Bureau Ambassador Nathan Sales you know, always advocates for countries to take back their own citizens. Uh, and in many ways, we've, we've practiced what we preached on that. Uh, in fact, it's so much so we're probably going to take a bunch of Brits too. Um, and we, we take other people's country, uh, citizens. Um, and, and so th th that's generally been the, the approach. There's a few areas I think it's going to be very difficult in the next couple months. Um, you saw a number of um, children, French, Canadian, and British children being picked up uh, by SDF, and how do you reintegr reintegrate them? In the American context, we've had at least um, six, six minors come back, uh, and they've largely fallen into that gray area of it's not a terrorism prevention program, it's more social services, but you know, they've also been in a war zone for the last four years. And actually, we, we have been able to leverage some uh, work of our science and technology um, research uh, around how, uh, I want to say, I can't remember the, the country, but there was an African country um, where they were trying to rehabilitate uh, child soldiers. And they were able to take some of that and try to um, assist social services. But I, I do think um, the, it's more, more so for our European partners and for us, but the, the return 
there are a number of children that have been exposed to really horrific things um, in the, the, the crisis in Syria. Um, and what happens to those children um, as they uh, grow up? We're gonna, this problem is going to be with us for quite a long time. Now, on the question of the GEC, I think um, uh, their efforts on, on jihadist-inspired counterpropaganda um, has had fits and starts, whether it's been uh, aggressively attacking ISIS propaganda with videos, um, which have been lambasted by the Washington Post. Um, but I think the more interesting part they're doing is the capacity building for um, uh, NGOs that are doing counter-messaging. Now, the jury is still out on um, the half of their budget, which is uh, state-sponsored propaganda, and how they're going to approach that issue. Um, and so we'll see uh, how they do that. That's time for one more question. I'm going to go um, there to... Yes. <laughs> uh, thanks very much. I'm Sakina Arlen from the British Embassy. Um, I had a two-part question. One is, earlier when you mentioned about DHS's role as being the belly button of the prevention architecture, and I wonder if you're in a position to elaborate a little bit about what that might look like mm. going forward. And also, on European partners, I was wondering if there are any lessons that uh, are being looked at about in prevention interventions elsewhere in Europe that might fit here and that you think might be applied. Okay, so two good questions. Um, on the first one, I, uh, so notionally, I, I think that there's general agreement that the Department of Justice, um, you know, the, no, there's absolute agreement, the Department of Justice has the lead for uh, the law enforcement investigative res responsibilities around terrorism. Uh, we, Department of Homeland Security, have uh, law enforcement elements in, that support the the FBI and um, you know there's there's good collaborative relationships so it's not that we don't play a role but they have the lead um, on the the part that we're we, we're talking about here today that far left of boom the uh, the community side the social services side um, the Department of Homeland Security is is probably the best suited in the in the federal government architecture to be able to address this space. At least that's the general um, conversation that we're having. But we certainly can't do it alone, um, and we certainly have to do it in strong partnership with, with those that um, uh, ha are, are the, well, I'll use some DHS parlance, the sector owners, if you will. So if you're, you're working with mental health and social services, obviously HHS um, has much stronger relationships with that community, speaks their language. Um, so it would be some, something we'd be working uh, with and through them. Uh, Department of Education obviously has a relationship with the schools and that, that kind of thing. So, so it's not that we are the only ent entity that should be doing something, but in terms of um, looking at it as a, a, a mission, who's going to be who's going to drive that mission and pull everybody together? And we we probably are the right answer, but part of the reason we're having a dialogue is we're open to others having different perspectives, and, and that we want to we want to wrestle with this because it it does uh, impact. Um, budgets and uh, kind of approaches. Uh, so uh, that's that's generally what we're, what we're noodling through right now is, is what does that look like. Um, on, tell, remind me your second question. Oh, yes. <laughs> that's, that's uh, yes. Um, unfortunately, uh, because of the number of attacks that they've had, um, they, they do have a lot of lessons coming out of it. But their systems um, are, are very, very different than ours. And, and Seamus, you probably have more... Uh, proper way of speaking about it, but every time I am engaging with them, you know, the basic things that I think that they should be able to do because of the way that their legal structure is designed, um, they they have difficulty uh, tracking. They also have significantly higher numbers of uh, potentially radicalized individuals that came back through the migrant flows, um, so it, it, they, they have a tremendous challenge on their hands, um, and I commend them. They've There's been some, some uh, times at which uh, it's probably been slower than they wish, but they, they've made some important steps like um, institutionalizing or requiring an API PNR capability. That's hugely important for us to be able to know uh, who's coming into our countries. Um, they're, they're working on better border screening. Um, they, the EU uh, privacy requirements uh, sometimes... Um, uh, it's funny, when you talk to them, that seems to be like the automatic concern, oh, we can't do it because of this. And then when you get into the, the weeds and the details, you find out, like, there's ways to do this 
um, that protect uh, privacy and actually, um, you know, completely within the bounds of what what the EU rules are. Um, so, so it, sometimes it's just taken a lot of talking to get to that other side. Um, so, but it's particular to the radicalization piece, and and are they doing things that it, honestly, it's been more of the. Um, uh, there's some really interesting NGOs, uh, ones out of uh, the UK that um, are doing some really interesting work in this space. Uh, the the UK obviously has their um, new uh, uh, contest strategy, and so they're trying some new things. We're, we're watching that closely, um, but but I, I don't know that anybody's found the holy grail yet, right? So we're still we're still talking and searching and, and looking for that evidence. I would just add, I think I think it's fair to say that the U.S. approach for countermeasuring extremists is largely married um, the European approach with with two notable exceptions. Um, one is our laws um, tended to be on on the whole stronger in terms of traveling to Syria and Iraq, um, and we tended to have longer sentences for individuals that were coming back. Uh, and so that in in and of itself um, doesn't force you to be creative on prevent terrorism prevention. So if you can arrest your way out of the problem, and if we have a small enough number, it looks like we can. Um, it doesn't put the onerous on law enforcement to think creatively about it. Um, I think that dynamic is, was changed um, after ISIS. And the last thing I think is going to be really interesting to watch in the next couple months, even years, um, European countries have largely been more, much more aggressive on regulation of tech companies uh, on content. Uh, you know, just this week, the UK signed the bill to, to make it 15 years if you streamed uh, an ISIS propaganda um, with some exception being me, I guess, hopefully. Um, but I don't see the U.S. getting to that point, and I wonder whether the window of, of pressure on techno- technology companies in the U.S. has, has largely closed because um, as ISIS has lost territory. And so I think that's going to be an area where you're going to have a divergence of, of policy when it comes to terrorism prevention. Um, we've reached our hour. Um, Assistant Secretary, uh, thank you for being here today. Thank you for delivering remarks. Um Seamus, thank you for your terrific analysis, and thank you all for being here, and if we could thank our excellent speakers, please.